Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for letting us come together as your people to learn, to grow, to mature in our following of Christ and, and helping one another in that uh, labor of sanctification. We thank you that we're not doing this alone. You've given us your word, your spirit, and your people. So help us today as we continue to think through life in our communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Start with two passages of Scripture this morning, Romans 12:15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We read that last week, uh, and we're going to be looking at the other half of that verse today. And then Ecclesiastes 3, 4, there is a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. So last Sunday, we looked at life and our communion and the topic of suffering and sorrow These are realities of our lives, uh, and God has called us to share in the sufferings and the sorrows of each other. He's also called us to rejoice with one another and to celebrate with one another. The unbelieving world disregards God altogether, Uh, basically live their lives in terms of what they want, their immediate desires, and so... Uh, oftentimes as they're seeking their own pleasure and that becomes the center of their life, the old saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Unfortunately, some Christians have overreacted to this uh, with a pseudo-Christian approach that it is otherworldly to the point of denying the world that we live in. In other words, we're more concerned about heaven. We're we're trying to. We're we're up here. We're living in the spiritual realm, and we don't want to engage in these so-called worldly pursuits. Pietism, not piety. Pietism is another form of legalism, uh, and works righteousness. We're going to be good little boys and girls and never have too much fun, uh, because uh, as a friend of mine used to mockingly say facetiously, and sometimes I'll say it to the children, no having fun on Sunday. We are serious, sober, somber, sad, and searching. Um, And of course, thankfully, all of our children just look at me and know that I'm kidding and give me a big smile and say, no, we're going to have fun. Well, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. You see, there are all kinds of pleasure police roaming the ranks of the church. Uh, ready and willing to draw the liberty line 10 feet further back than God has. And so they fall off the horse on the other side. The Christian life is not exclusively otherworldly, not just exclusively heavenly-minded. There is a world to come, but we're not there yet. God desires that we serve him in this world first. And so he deals with us as real human, human beings, flesh and blood, uh, with real human feelings and desires. He knows our frame. He knows, uh, he, he comforts our sorrows. Uh, but he also creates our pleasures. The goal of the Christian life is not to escape or hide from life. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
And we enjoy him in the things he's created, in the people he's created, in the circumstances of life that he's created. And we are to do this both in this life and the life to come. So neither pleasure nor abstaining from pleasure is in and of itself more or less spiritual. We can overindulge in pleasure and then and thus become sinful in our conduct. Liberty can easily be turned into license. Likewise, we can overindulge in abstinence like the Pharisees did and thus become sinful in our conduct. Therefore, both fasting and feasting can be used in a righteous or an unrighteous way. Our duty is to know the difference. God expects us to exercise self-government under him when it comes to his blessings. And this means we should not establish rules that God himself has not established, lest we become either Pharisees or libertines. Of all the people in the world, we have the most to celebrate. The gospel is good news, and that is the foundation of all true celebration. And so let's begin with a bit of theology, a theology of celebration. Remember, theology is just what God thinks about something and what he's revealed regarding what he thinks about that subject. And so the starting point for a theology of Christian celebration is the fact that God approves of celebration. And we see this celebration as being affirmed both in heaven, uh, or or I should say in heaven in several places. So, for example, in Luke 15, uh, there is great joy and rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's a celebration. In Revelation 7, uh, 9 through 10, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That picture of the palm branches waving and celebrating this event. This truth. On earth, celebrations were identified by Jesus as good. He was participating, for example, in the marriage feast at Cana, where his first miracle is performed. And we have the crowd, of course, celebrating his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, also with palm branches. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people celebrating all sorts of things. Some celebrations or feast, had been formally commanded by God, and some were not. Some were tied to historical events, Passover, dedication of the temple, Purim, Hanukkah, and some were not. Some were based on harvest festivals, and some were not. Some were national, some were tied to the rites of passage, circumcision, weddings. Some were ad hoc, community feasts, like those described in Luke 15, Remember the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and, of course, the prodigal son. There was celebration over the finding of that which was lost. Some were religious, like the Day of Atonement. Some were community feasts. Some celebrated 
specific events like the returning of the Ark of the Covenant. And then in First Chronicles, a great text here that describes celebration when the Ark was returned. It says, And David and all of Israel celebrated before God with all their might and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals and with trumpets. There was, of course, the dedication of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. We read in Nehemiah 12, 27 through 29, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the uh, Nephilites, from the house of Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba, and as, uh, as a Mavith, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. So they, they went out and gathered up all the musicians for this grand celebration, uh, celebrating the rebuilding of the wall. You'll remember, of course, that the shepherds, the wise men, and the angels celebrated the birth of Jesus with gifts, with songs, with prayers. God gave Israel many celebrations in the Old Covenant, such as the Feast of Booths, the Year of Jubilee, and so forth. And in the New Covenant, he, of course, has given us the Lord's Supper, given us baptism as celebrations. And so uh, we also see future celebrations, such as the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so it is clear from Scripture that celebration is a spiritual discipline that God desires for us to practice, and he, did never, he never intended for us to really practice that alone. We, there's a certain level of celebration that might happen alone. You, got, you, know, you won the sweepstakes, I guess. You would celebrate that. Um, but um, generally, as we're talking about the context of our life in the communion, in the community, it's in that context where these celebrations take place. We share that with one another. Um, And so it's good and proper uh, to have routine times to celebrate the Lord. We do that on every Lord's Day. That's what our worship service is, is a celebration. It's also good to have special times of devotion or celebration, both on a personal level and a community level. And within the life of our communion, we celebrate things like births, baptisms, birthdays, graduations, engagements, weddings, anniversaries, and anything else we can think of because we have been given abundant life and we share that life with each other. Of course, again, we celebrate the Lord's Day in worship with robust singing, giving of thanks, and we conclude each Lord's Day by having a feast. That's an extension of our celebration. It's not just eating food. It's celebrating God's good gifts. And in the Bible, feasting is the central expression of celebration. That's true in Scripture. That's true throughout history. It is the counterpart to fasting. As God promised the Messianic future in the book of Isaiah, he promises that he will wipe away uh, tears from all faces. And his picture of redemption is that of extravagant 
extravagant feasting. Isaiah 25, 6, And in this mountain shall Yahweh of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. Genesis 1.31, and God, God's created order is good. And God saw that everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. So all the stuff in the world is good. Material things are not evil, though sinful men often use them in an evil way. I can't possibly teach a lesson on celebration without quoting Robert Capon, which I will do, I think, three times this morning. He says this, They made a calf in Horeb, thus they turned their glory into the similitude of a calf that eateth hay. Bad enough, you say. Ah, but it was worse than that. Whatever good may have resided in the golden calf, whatever loveliness of gold or beauty of line, went begging the minute the Israelites got the idea that it was their savior out of the bondage of Egypt. In making the statue a matter of the greatest point, they missed the point of its matter altogether. Of course, there is always a sinful way of taking the good things of God that God has given us and abusing them. And this includes celebrating and feasting. It can turn into gluttony and drunkenness and all kinds of other debauched things. And it does in the world. And we as Christians need to be certain that we are not part of that. Our celebrations are means of giving thanks to God for his blessings, a sort of wallowing in his blessings as a means of commemorating his blessings. So just a few verses here, Genesis 21.8, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. Genesis 29.2, And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Exodus 5.1, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And of course, Luke 15, maybe the great, one of the great, greatest stories of a feast, and we have that picture, Rembrandt's picture out in the foyer of the church of the prodigal son uh, returning to his father. And, it, and we read, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this... My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and he came and drew nigh to the house and heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
What's going on? Something's happening. In one sense, we should celebrate all the time. Proverbs 15, 15, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Our attitude matters. In another sense, feasting is reserved, in, in, a, in another sense, for special occasions. Of course, that means we just need more special occasions, or at least learn how to make those occasions more special. So feasting is public. It's a community event. Uh, we share our joys, our blessings, and gifts with one another. The book of Jude speaks of the church as having love feast. Festal celebrations involve the entire household, and our church, of course, is a household. In Deuteronomy 16:14, And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Whoever happens to be here is invited to the feast. In fact, we could go out and bring in some more. This included the assembly, the congregation, 1 Kings 8, 2. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So feasting is a sort of indulgence, or more properly, indulging in the goodness of God. While this isn't uh, sinful indulgence, it is nevertheless a form of self-indulgence with God's permission. Um, like a parent allowing a child to en enjoy a special treat. Even this has limits, but on special days, God tells us to do special things. Pleasure, beauty, joy, have at it. Be all in. As Robert Capon put it, food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness ordained for a continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than it is useful. Um, I really recommend, if you have not read Supper of the Lamb, to get that book. Everybody would, you would enjoy it. Uh, I know there's a couple of copies out there on our book cart. Um, but it is wonderful. And one of the points he made is that God could have just given us a tablet. He could have given us the equivalent of Purina human chow. And we could have just taken our nutrition once a day in a couple of pills, or maybe one big pill. But he didn't. He gave us a world full of what he calls unnecessary goodness. Smells, tastes, colors, uh, fellowship around a table, the, all the things, the creativity that goes into food, all of those things are part of what we're doing in feasting, and it's not necessary, if we mean by that, to live and function. Um, but God, of course, gave it to us. We are engaging in all the delights, uh, in, excuse me, we're engaging all the delights of the senses, sight, taste, smell, touch, and sound. All of those, by the way, are included in the feast we call the Lord's Supper. All the delights of fellowship with God and our neighbors. There's thanksgiving, there's laughter, there's encouragement. These are the things that if we filled our lives with them, we would have lives full of great memories. Of course, we know that in a fallen world, everything is bittersweet. It's 
Sometimes we burn the roast. Uh, sometimes uh, we spill the milk. Things happen. And yet we need to emphasize the sweet over the bitter. In our communion, we have many celebrations at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. In addition to our weekly celebration on the Lord's Day, some of these are our annual things like Shrove Tuesday, which is, is that next week or the following week? What? Another week, okay. Monday, Thursday, Easter, Pentecost, and our Fall Fest, and sometimes we throw in some extra feasts here and there. Some are more elaborate, and some require great planning. Others are more casual and spontaneous. Some involve the entire church along with guests. Some are with small groups. Others are even smaller and in our homes, as we are all extensions of the church. Celebration is an extension of hospitality, wherein we are imitators of God. We just had a men's discipleship conference on the subject of hospitality. So if we think of celebration and feast as an extension of hospitality, that's what we're doing. We are being hospitable to one another in the name of the Lord. Celebration is something we must practice and get better at. Again, Robert Capon. Grace is the celebration of life, relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It is a floating cosmic bash, shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its uh, castations to every window, pounding at every door in hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. Imagine what it would be like, kind of scary actually in a way, to hold a three-week feast, a three-week celebration every year. That's what God required of Israel. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. You need to bring something to this feast. In addition, they had many other celebrations, and some lasted several days. Sometimes they extended their celebrations. Second Chronicles 30:23, and then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days, and they kept it another seven days with gladness. And if you've ever really celebrated, uh, you know it's hard work. If we're to reclaim this art, which I think we're working at, then we're going to have to self-consciously make a determined effort. Or perhaps we can start with our families or our fellowship meals, making them a more self-conscious celebration before God. Why are we celebrating? Well, because God commands it. Because when we celebrate, we remember God's work. Ezra 6.10, And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. 
Nehemiah 8.12, And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and greatly and and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them because when we celebrate it helps us remember what's important again that's why we come to the lord's table every week to remember what's important james 117 every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning every good gift you have is a, is a gift solomon wrote in ecclesiastes 2:24 nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor this also i saw was from the hand of god that's why we give thanks at every meal Every meal is a feast. Every, every meal, in that sense, is also a celebration because it's a time of thanksgiving to God. Again, why are we celebrating? Uh, what are, excuse me, what are we celebrating? The good gifts of God, family and friends, material blessings, special occasions. Uh, is it just a party? No. It's always to be done with thankfulness to the Lord, just as we always give thanks, again, to, for our food before we eat. We're not beast. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that mean? Let's talk about that. When we, talk, we use that word, to the glory of God, rather casually. We've heard it so many times, but I want to emphasize again what glory is. Glory is a magnification Glory is taking something that's beautiful and making it even more beautiful, shining a light on it, if you will, amplifying it, making it louder. And again, the illustration I've used is a bride, a beautiful woman who on the day of her wedding, her attendants take and put her in a lovely dress and do her hair and her makeup and prepare her so that when... She comes through those doors at the back of the sanctuary and everybody stands and looks. We see a glorified woman. We're called to glorify. How do you glorify God? I mean, he's the, he's the most glorious. But he created us in his image and calls for us to point to him, to stand and look to him, to recognize that every good gift comes from him. And we do that when we give thanks, when we acknowledge that we are nothing without him, that we owe him our lives, eternal lives. And so that's what is meant by glorifying God. And God says when we celebrate, when we feast, we're to do it unto the Lord. We are to glorify him, and so we should have a good time to the glory of God. How should we celebrate? Good food, drink, dancing, music. Those are some clear examples from Scripture. In fact, Deuteronomy 14, 26, uh, interesting verse. I remember the first time I read this in the King James, um, it, it was a little startling. I'm going to read it in the New King James, and then I'll tell you what was startling. So we celebrate with whatever our heart desires. What do you like? And you shall Deuteronomy fourteen twenty six. And you shall spend you shall spend that money 
for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. In the King James, it says, uh, you shall spend that money for whatever your whatever you, your heart lusteth after. For wine or strong drink. Whatever your heart lusteth after. Second one, okay, thank you. Uh, the first one is lusteth after. Soul desireth, that's another strong term. Second Samuel 6, 5, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, on sistrums and on cymbals. That was a loud, uh, raucous event with all the percussion there. Music and dancing. You know, we're the frozen chosen, right? We're Presbyterians. We're very proper. Well, sometimes your feet need to move. Allow me to heap up a few verses. Psalm 30, 11. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. Psalm 149, 3. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. Ecclesiastes 3, 4. Time to weep, time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Jeremiah 31, 4, again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. Luke 15, 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. So we need, uh, so learning to celebrate means learning to splurge with a clear conscience. I think to some degree this is relative, but the utilitarians sometimes find this really hard. Uh, we're, we've got our calculators out. How much, how much did you spend on that? Um, uh, you cannot measure joy by the price per pound. Good celebrations are not necessarily cheap. Jesus, didn't, of course, didn't submit to the false piety behind tightwad pietism. So we read, um, of course, in Mark 14, and, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table. As he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. You have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not always have. And so the Bible teaches us that we should save up for and budget for celebrations. 
Now, we should not spend beyond our means. That would be sinful. Um, Marinelle and I like for our anniversary to find a very nice restaurant to go to. But that is relative. Uh, when we were young and had three young children, a very nice restaurant was like Bonanza Steakhouse. Um, uh, and had we done more than that, we probably would have been sinning. Um, as we've gotten older and gotten our three kids off the payroll, um, we could afford a bit more. And we don't do it all the time. It's a, an occasional event. And our kids have even blessed us in the last few years with Christmas gifts, with gift cards to nice places where we could go celebrate. In fact, uh, last year we were at Keepersall Restaurant in Tyler, probably the best meal we've had in a long time. And the waiter asked us, um, are you celebrating something? And it was not our anniversary. It was not a birthday. And Marinelle said, yes. We're celebrating the fact that we have three grown children who are doing well enough to send us here tonight. (laughs) So we shouldn't spend beyond our means, but neither should we feel guilty for spending money on celebrations at the church or for weddings or birthdays or vacations. We should spend whatever we can with a clear conscience. When should we celebrate? Daily. Proverbs 15, 15 again. But he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Uh, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Weekly. The weekly Sabbath. Uh, Exodus 31:16. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. God has set apart one day a week for, the, for us to celebrate before Him, to rejoice in His goodness, and to fellowship with His saints. Of course, at the Lord's Supper, the place of unity and renewal, rejoicing, thankfulness, fellowship, a weekly feast before the Lord. Special occasions like buildings or baptisms or anniversaries and so forth. God's world is full of reasons to celebrate. Godly celebration pleases God. It's an expression of faith and obedience. It's, a, it's the demonstration of an abundant Christian life. And so I will close with one more Robert Capon quote, again from the Supper of the Lamb. For all its rooted loveliness, the world has no continuing city here. It is an outlandish place, a foreign home, a session in way to a better version of itself. And it is our glory to see it so, And to thirst until Jerusalem comes home at last, we were given appetites not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and to hunger to make it great. So that'll wrap up this morning's lesson in a few extra minutes. Any comments or questions or input on the topic of celebration? What's that?
that's true, uh, but uh, there should be some, some negotiation and uh, lean in the direction of generosity. And again, feasts can be simple. Uh, the Lord's Supper is simple, bread and wine. It could be a picnic. Just think of the whole range. In fact, it's part of that diversity of feasting that makes, makes it all good. If you, I remember uh, at one point my grandmother was in ICU, and we were stuck in a hospital waiting room for about a month, and we ate out quite a bit. And I can remember craving a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, it was just like... I do not want to eat out again. Um, so I, I think sitting at your tables at home remind you of that. I remember meeting a kid once in, in high school. He said he didn't ever recall sitting at a table eating a meal with his family. They stood in the kitchen. They ate fast food or pizza or whatever. Sit down. I realize you can't do this all the time. There are times when we have to eat on the go. Uh, but remember, your table is a place of feasting and of celebration what we do here you're to go home and imitate at your house we had a celebration and a feast last night becky called marinelle and i at about 5:20 and said would you like to come over for supper at six o'clock and uh, we joined her and caleb and the kids and had a delightful little two hour or so celebration with each other So celebrations are small and they're large and everything in between, but we need to think of them that way. Remember, we want to bring our theology to this. We want to think about celebrations as giving thanks to God for his good gifts. And these are the people sitting around the table. The people sitting in this room are those gifts. And then there's lots of other gifts as well. The food itself, the song is a gift and that's why we, when we sing, we sing together. Uh, we make a joyful noise to the Lord. And he finds all of this to be, it's interesting, the language he uses. Maybe I'll follow up with a, a lesson just on the theology of food. But what does he say about the sacrifices that come up to him? They are a sweet aroma. He likes the smell of our cooking. That's a, that's, and then we're to join in that meal with him. And so that's what we have as God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all your good gifts. We don't even know what they all are. They, they're so abundant around us all the time. We take them for granted so easily. Help us to see them, to pause, to contemplate, to consider every little good thing as well as the great good things. Help us to be a rejoicing people, a people that love to be together, to celebrate before you with thankful hearts. Bless us now as we enter into our weekly celebration and worship before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.